Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 13. The Root of All Our Calamities. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Last time, we covered the Second Bishop's War. The Army of the Covenant, after tying up royalist forces in Scotland, marched south into England. Berwick was encircled and bypassed, and after a brief but overwhelming victory at the Ford of Newburn, Lord General Alexander Leslie occupied Newcastle. With few other options available to him, Charles I agreed to the Treaty of Ripon with the occupying Covenanters, and agreed to call an English Parliament to meet at the start of November 1640. This Parliament was elected against a background of serious social unrest. Economically, international trade had been suffering throughout the last two decades of the Thirty Years' War, and the Scottish crisis had hurt trade within and between the three kingdoms. Charles's financial policies, including selling monopolies and the hated ship money, which were aimed at acquiring money for the crown, didn't help matters. Rioting and the civil disobedience we saw in episode 11 didn't end after the king's military defeat. In October 1640, rioters broke into churches across England, including in Suffolk, Berkshire and Buckinghamshire, destroying church organs and altar railings. As we've seen, we can't assume that everyone taking part in this violence did so out of a firmly held theological disagreement. Many were, but others were swept along, fueled by more generalised anti-authority feeling. Yet, Laudian reforms were explicitly targeted, even when the representatives of these policies weren't inanimate altar railings that couldn't run away or fight back. One such target, the very animate Dr. Arthur Duck, was Archbishop Lord's Vicar General. In the course of his duties, he went on a visitation of Essex and London to ensure that the new canons, which had after all been agreed at the convocation of the church earlier in the year and included a controversial oath, were being followed. Instead of finding a peaceful land and quiet people, in several parishes Dr. Duck was welcomed by crowds of people shouting, No Oath! On the 22nd of October, the Court of High Commission, the ecclesiastical twin of Star Chamber, met to consider the fates of those who had refused to follow the new canons. While this court was in session, a mob invaded St Paul's Cathedral, actively looking for Dr Duck. To escape the crowd, Duck took flight out of a window. 
The following Sunday, while a service took place in the cathedral, a group broke into the office and destroyed the records of the High Commission. When these men were tried for the capital offence of interfering in a court of justice, the jury refused to convict. So it's perhaps no surprise that, when the parliamentary elections were held, critics of royal policy won in vast numbers. Just shy of half of the candidates backed by the court were elected, and this election saw the highest number of contested constituencies yet, at 80. For many constituencies, however, the choice of MP was not in doubt. Known opponents of the Crown were elected en masse. Dozens of MPs would attend Parliament with petitions in hand, drawn up by their electors, which outlined exactly what they expected him to achieve. Others had had the will of their constituents made expressly clear during their selections, and needed no scrap of paper to tell them their charge. At the risk of sounding like a stuck record, these grievances were mainly revolving around financial and religious policies. Ship money, impositions, monopolies and patents, and religious innovations, the new canons, the oath, and fears of papistry and a slow reversion to Catholicism. Charles and his court were not unaware of this strong feeling. After all, how could they? His subjects had used legal and illegal means to make their opposition known. So, when Charles returned to London on the 30th of October, after his humiliation in the North, he did not march triumphantly back into the city, but rather slunk back to the Palace of Whitehall. When the Parliament opened three days later, Charles's tail was still firmly between his legs, and instead of the traditional grand procession through the streets, he chose to sail by barge along the Thames. Charles opened the session with a short speech, where he stated his wish that, quote, Therefore, I shall only desire you to consider the best way, both for the safety and security of this kingdom. Wherein there are two parts chiefly considerable. First, the chastising out of the rebels, and secondly, that other in satisfying your just grievances, wherein I shall promise you to concur so heartily and clearly with you, that all the world may see my intentions have ever been and shall be to make this a glorious and flourishing kingdom. His speech didn't win Parliament over. It was well noted that Charles continued to call the Covenanters rebels when, in the minds of many, they saw them as justly outraged Protestants. What followed were days of speeches outlining the grievances which the kingdom was suffering from. Grievances which we don't need to go into yet again. We know what they are. However, now Parliament was in a position to do something about them. With the Covenanter army still poised in the northeast, receiving £850 every day, Charles couldn't rely on his tried-and-true method of dissolving Parliament and burying his head in the sand. One of the first priorities of the Parliament was the release of political prisoners, those who had fallen afoul of the personal rule and been condemned to imprisonment and mutilation. On the 7th and on the 9th of November, the Commons passed petitions to release Alexander Leighton, John Bastwick, William Prynne, Henry Burton, and John Lilburn. Leighton, Bastwick, Prynne, and Burton we've met before. These were the men found guilty by Star Chamber of libel and sedition. They were mutilated 
by having their ears cut off, with Prin receiving a brand on both cheeks, and then they were imprisoned. But, as I mentioned at the time, they were not forgotten, despite the government sending them to the farthest reaches of the kingdom. When these men returned to London, they did so to a welcome of thousands of people cheering them and welcoming them back. In the Lords, the old enemy of Archbishop Lord, Bishop Williams of Lincoln, was released from his own captivity and retook his seat in that body. With these victories in hand, and with the presence of these quite visible reminders of royal tyranny, Parliament set to work. First up on the chopping block, pun partially intended, were the so-called evil counsellors, the defenders and champions of personal rule, who had supposedly orchestrated Charles's tyrannical policies. This included the judges of the Hamden trial, who'd found in favour of the legality of ship money, such as Lord Keeper John Finch. These men were impeached, and Finch and some of his colleagues had to flee the country to avoid the punishment which a vengeful parliament hoped to inflict. The two other high-profile targets of parliament's wrath were, of course, Archbishop William Lord and the Earl of Strafford, Sir Thomas Wentworth. For his part, Lord knew what was coming. We've already seen how he'd been personally targeted by London's mobs, and during the Second Bishop's War, even more libels and calls for his punishment came off secret prints. He commented before the Parliament gathered that, I am almost every day threatened with my ruin in Parliament. Preparing for what would, at best, be a demotion, Lord spent the first month of Parliament donating various texts and arranging charity work. In all things, he seemed resigned to his fate, and told the jurist and MP John Selden that he would be willing to ask Charles to undo the canons if needed. Despite this olive branch, the Archbishop was impeached on the 18th of December 1640, on charges of both a secular and religious nature. In his biography of Lord, Anthony Milton summarises the charges as so. He was accused of endeavouring to subvert the fundamental laws to bring in arbitrary government, of hindering justice, of altering the true religion and usurping papal powers, of labouring to reconcile England and Rome, of persecuting godly preachers, of sowing division with other reformed churches, of stirring a war with Scotland, and of alienating the king from his subjects. It was the theme of popery that ran through both the secular and religious charges, and provided the rationale that lay behind Lord's treacherous actions. One MP, Sir Harbottle Grimston, who we'll see in the future, described Lord as the root and ground of all our miseries and calamities, the sty of all pestilential filth that hath infected the state and government. So, safe to say he's not a fan. Lord was taken into the custody of the gentleman usher and held until February, when his case once again came before Parliament, urged by the commissioners of the Covenanters in London to negotiate a treaty. Fourteen articles of impeachment were passed against the Archbishop, and on the 1st of March, Lord was transferred to the Tower of London. Lord's final years are quite sad, honestly. 
Charles effectively abandoned him from November 1640, and with his impeachment and imprisonment, Parliament was done with him. He was an old man, whose danger had purely been his influence over the king. With that connection severed, and him safely ensconced in the tower, he wasn't a threat anymore. He wasn't even worth killing. The same dubious honour cannot be said for Strafford. It was written centuries after the Earl's death, but I think he would agree with the sentiment behind Charles Mackay's poem, No Enemies. You have no enemies, you say? Alas, my friend, the boast is poor. He who has mingled in the fray of duty that the brave endure must have made foes. If you have none, small is the work that you have done. Strafford had certainly made enemies in the course of his work. His transformation from royal critic to royalist agent would have still stung for many in the commons who had once counted him an ally. In the course of his royal service, he'd made many more. The Marquis of Clanricard, Ulick Burke, had once squabbled with Strafford in Ireland, and he wrote in the run-up to the Parliament that, quote, When Parliament doth sit, the day will come he shall pay for all. Like Lord, Strafford was well aware that he had a target on his back, his front, and from every possible angle. Wisely, he was safely in his native Yorkshire when Parliament met on the 3rd of November. Even safer, he was at the head of what was left of the Royal Army in his position as Lieutenant General of the Army. This kept him out of harm's way, but it also heightened the fears of his enemies. With the walls closing in, what if he tried to use force to secure his position? His opponents in Parliament, as well as the Covenanters, were increasingly concerned. And this fear was not entirely unfounded. He was still Lord Lieutenant in Ireland, and still held nominal authority over the large Irish army. But while Strafford was aware of the danger he would be in, he still answered when the king called. Charles needed trusted counsellors. He needed Strafford in London. So despite knowing it was likely a trap, Strafford followed his liege's command, and he entered London on the 10th of November. Now, Strafford made the fears of his enemies a little bit more true. He urged Charles to bring the Northern Army south and ferry the Irish across St George's Channel. With this force, the Tower of London could be seized and returned to royal control and the traitors within Parliament who had collaborated with the Covenanters could be arrested. He proposed nothing less than a military coup. Unfortunately for Strafford, before the King could be convinced, Parliament struck first. On the 11th of November, John Pym led the charge. The Commons accused Strafford of treason and voted for his impeachment. When Strafford rushed back to the House of Lords to defend himself and stifle this move against him, he was arrested. On the 25th of November, after two weeks in the custody of the gentleman usher, he was sent to the Tower. Hello, I'm Fry. And I'm Brie from Pontifax, a papal history podcast ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. In each episode, we explore the life of a single pope and contextualize their papacy in world history. 
And then we rate them based on the success of their papacy, how scandalous they were, their impact on the secular world, what their face looked like, and more. They may even pick up a new patron sainthood on the way. In the end, our most impactful papal bull-worthy popes will battle it out for the keys to the pearly gates and to be the popiest pope who ever poped. You can find Pontifax at pontifax.podbean.com or wherever you find your podcasts. And on the Agora Podcast Network. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. So, by the end of 1640, Charles's government had lost several leading figures. Some to parliamentary jailers, others to exile. And he had been powerless to save them. Somehow, his position was even worse than it had been when Parliament first met. And he still, still didn't have any money. So, in the new year, on the 23rd of January, 1641, Charles gave a speech to both Houses of Parliament at the Banqueting House. In this speech, the King once again explained to Parliament the pressing need to pay the armies, both his own and that of the Covenanters, and to restore the Kingdom's defences. In return, Charles promised to reform the religious innovations of personal rule, return to government by law, and to, quote, reduce all matters of religion and government to what they were in the purest times of Queen Elizabeth's days, end quote. The role of bishops could be discussed by Parliament. He would voluntarily give up any revenues which they considered illegal or unjust, and agreed to pass a bill mandating frequent Parliaments. What was not on offer was any, quote, alteration of government. Whatever else was decided by Parliament, the bishops would remain integral members of the Lords, and the person of the monarch would remain the only figure capable of calling a Parliament. This firm, concrete position faltered when no money was forthcoming, and Charles relaxed his opposition to that final point. On the 16th of February, he granted royal assent to the Triennial Act, a law which required Parliament meet at least once every three years, and for it to sit for at least 50 days before being dissolved. If the king refused to summon one, then it permitted others to do so. Charles bitterly gave his assent to the act, in contrast to the people of London who, on the prompting of Parliament, celebrated the bill with the ringing of church bells and the burning of bonfires. Charles's price for the sacrifice of this prerogative was a grant of four subsidies, which were duly voted by Parliament. For all its constitutional heft, in theory there could never be another personal rule, simply because the monarch didn't want a Parliament, this act wasn't all-powerful. Initially, it had mandated annual Parliaments, 
but this was reduced to ease its passage. The Triennial Act also did nothing to prevent the king dissolving the current parliament if he so wished, and the concern that he might do so only increased during the events of spring 1641. At the insistence of the Covenanters, Charles had been excluded from the negotiations for the forthcoming treaty. Instead, the English party was led by John Digby, 1st Earl of Bristol, and the Marquess of Hamilton. The Covenanters sent eight commissioners to London to negotiate, including Henderson, Warriston, and Loudon. Loudon, if you remember, had previously been arrested by Charles for signing the Aura letter to the French. These eight men were then joined by three more, including the Earl of Argyll. These, in turn, were joined by 13 representatives of Charles's Third Kingdom. The Irish Parliament had reconvened for its third session on the 1st of November, and dispatching its own agents in Wentworth's absence. They joined other Irish notables in London, including Richard Boyle, 1st Earl of Cork. We'll speak more of Cork next time. The negotiations bore fruit. In December 1640, Charles agreed to assent to the acts passed in Scotland in June. While in January and February of 1641, the financial details of reparations for the Covenanters and their army were settled. The final and most important matter was the establishment of a lasting peace between England and Scotland. To this end, on the 19th of February, Charles appointed peers known to favour the Covenanters to his Privy Council including Essex, Say and Seeley, and Bedford. This would have the added benefit, Charles hoped, of winning them over to his view on episcopacy and causing a split between them and the Covenanters. Well, the Covenanters were wise to this, and they forced the issue. Drawing on their shared hatred of the Earl of Strafford, the Covenanter commissioners published a demand calling for his execution and the abolition of the episcopacy. Because, while all of this was going on, the Earl of Strafford was still being held in the Tower of London as Parliament attempted to build a case against him. The trial truly began on the 22nd of March, after Strafford had spent four months in the Tower preparing to fight for his life. We will cover the trial of the Earl of Strafford next week. Thank you to my House of Lords, including, but not limited to, my royal favourites, Mike Sanders and Owen Cotton, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, the Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin, the Duke of Ormond, Brendan Bonner. They are joined by the first new peers of 2021, Brendan Sherry, Earl of Lincoln, and Rock, Earl of Widdicombe. Prol Trufazu has been promoted to the Earldom of Kent. If you'd like to join their ranks and receive ad-free versions of each of these episodes, please go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. Remember to give the Explorers podcast and Pontifex a try if you haven't already. I'm friends with the hosts of both shows. I met the hosts in Boston. They're wonderful people and they produce fantastic history podcasts. Simply search their podcasts in your favourite podcast app or go to the description of this episode where I'll put a pod link to both shows. You can just tap that and you'll have a choice of whichever app you want to use. Before I finish, thank you to Jeremy Kotowski, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, for your very, very generous donation. If you would like to donate, there is a link also in the description. 
So if you've got a few quid spare and you just don't want to sign up to Patreon, then this is an option for you. Another way to support the podcast is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, feel free to tell a friend about the show if you think they'd enjoy it. With that, thank you to my entire House of Lords, to Sounds Like an Earful for providing the music used in today's episode, and, of course, as always, to you for listening.